If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to um, this evening and next, uh, I almost said Wednesday evening, next Tuesday evening, look at six practical exhortations from Philippians chapter 4. We're going to do three tonight. We'll do three uh, next Tuesday evening. And um, probably nothing that I'm going to share is new, uh, but hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you, maybe a challenge as well. It's God's word. It's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Uh, this was, I think, the second. I was trying to remember um, this week. I think it was the second passage of Scripture that I memorized years ago. The first one was Psalm 1, and then I think it was this uh beginning portion in Philippians chapter 4. We're just going to read the first eight verses this evening. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Suntuke to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, Help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things and we'll just ask the lord to speak to us from his word this evening heavenly father thank you lord for uh, meeting together here in this place thank you for those that are joining us online and and we come together this evening as one body of believers we we come together father to um, hear from your word this is your word it's your truth And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would bring something out of the Word of God tonight that would be an encouragement to us, Lord. Uh, There's, I'm sure, I know people listening tonight that are discouraged, that are facing difficult issues in their life, and so I pray for those people. Father, there would be be something that perhaps would speak to us in a way to uh, exhort us, to challenge us, Lord, maybe even to rebuke us, Father. And so you know our hearts, you know what we need to hear. And I just ask God that you would speak, that you would give me, Father, the right uh, words and the right heart to present your word this evening. And I ask for your strength and help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Six practical exhortations from Philippians 4. Number one, here it is. Number one, stand in unity. That's the first one. Stand in unity. Paul begins this this uh, this chapter, I think we all know that the chapter breaks were not put in there by Paul. He didn't write that way. He wrote one long letter. Uh, but those who decided many years ago to divide the, the Bible up into chapters and verses 
saw this as a natural breaking point, obviously why they put chapter four and verse one. But, but, but verse one begins with the word therefore, and if you back up to what was at the end of chapter three, the last two verses in chapter three read, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, he says, my beloved and long for brethren. And so it's, it, it's coming out of that hope that we have at the end of chapter three, and the prospect of being with Christ and being like Christ and our bodies being changed and all that that means. And there's a lot packed into that. He comes off of that thought into chapter four. And he says, therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord. And then he, and then he speaks to two sisters to be of the same mind in the Lord, to stand in unity. Paul's heart for these believers, his heart for this church was one of love. You can't miss it in verse one. He calls them my beloved at the beginning of the verse. He calls them beloved at the end of the verse. It's like, there's no way you can miss it. That Paul absolutely loved these believers. They were his loved ones. That is literally the meaning of that word beloved. They were his loved ones. He called, he says, you're my longed for brethren. That's even stronger. It's like, I love you, but I long for you. It, it speaks of a heart a stronger sense of a love and a heart for these people, these believers. He calls them his joy. He says, my joy or my delight, the thought of being my delight. And then he refers to them as his crown. All of that packed into verse one to say that he had an incredibly high regard for these believers and he loved them incredibly and they were special to him. They were a delight to him. They were a joy to him. As I think about the idea of someone being a delight, uh, to your heart immediately. I know I talk about this all the time, but immediately my mind goes to my grandchildren and I think about them and they are a delight to my heart. They are a joy and, and I love them. And, 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 and when you, when I see, when I'm with them, it just, it energizes me and it brings me a joy. And, and I thought about that as Paul speaking about these believers, like he absolutely has a heart for these people and a passion for them. So there's a, a genuine concern as he writes these practical exhortations. And the first one is, as I said, stand in unity. He says, stand fast in the Lord in verse one, stand fast in the Lord. That, that idea of standing fast and, and your translations might be a little different there, but, but we don't, we don't use the word fast very often anymore, except to, if you're driving fast somewhere. But the idea of standing fast is like planting your feet really solidly or really strongly. It's the idea of being stationary, uh, of taking a solid position or a solid stance in something. And, and there's no question that the, the thought in here or the, 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 where he's going with this is the idea of battle imagery. When you think of someone standing fast and planting themselves, it's like I'm getting ready for battle. Uh, maybe about the only time we might do that, some of you play sports, if you're in some kind of a contact sport or something like that, and you're ready to get hit, you're kind of planting your feet firm because you know it's coming. 
And if you don't play contact sports, then you probably don't do this kind of thing very often. But but th there's a sense here almost of a battle imagery. We're in a battle. We're in a conflict. You have a prospect. You're going to be with Christ. It, it's like it's like we've already won in a sense. This is what we're headed for. So while we're here on this earth, until we get there, until we get home, until we get heaven, plant your feet firm. Stand firm and stand together stand fast in the lord beloved stand together against the opposition of this world and of the enemy that is against us and against the purpose of christ there, there was a problem in this church it's it's the only problem as far as i can see in the entire letter of philippians the only negative thing that paul draws attention to is this conflict or this division that was between two fellow christians they are probably sisters in the Lord, because if you look up the uh, the word or the names and the origin of the names, they, they seem to be female names. So these two sisters who are not getting along. The pronunciation is difficult. If you take some of these Greek words and you look up the uh, you dig in a little bit, you can get the, the phonetics about how to pronounce them. So the, the first one, Euodia, and the second one, Suntuke, as far as I can tell, that is the way they are to be pronounced. I don't speak Greek, but that's the way it would have been. But but there was a disunity between these two sisters. We are not told what the issue was. Um, I think, again, the wisdom of the Spirit of God to withhold that. It could be any number of things that was causing conflict between these two sisters. But here you had in this amazing, encouraging, positive church, you had a problem of people not getting along with each other. And thank the Lord that never happens today, right? Christians always get along. They never disagree. They always stand together. Too often, we know, unfortunately, right, that that is not the case. There can be offenses that can come up between believers in Christ. Self gets in, pride, opinions, whatever. And too easily, we can divide one another. And Paul urges, when we get to verse 3, he urges uh, the, the the effort to reconcile these two sisters in the Lord to get over the issue that there is dividing them. And so in verse 1, he says, I want you to stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I want you to plant your feet firmly. I want you to be in a battle stance to be ready because the enemy is going to come at you. And don't let the enemy divide you. Be of the same mind in the Lord. He says, I implore these two sisters to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's interesting that word same there, uh, in the Greek, it is the word autos, A-U-T-O-S. And I think you can see immediately we get our word automatic from that. And, and, the, and the meaning of that or the thought of that, the sameness, the that there should be this automatic response to our focus on the Lord. When we are focused on the Lord, it ought to draw us together. It ought to pull us together that we ought to be of the same mind in the Lord. When our eyes are on Christ, when we're focused on him, we are going to, in a sense, automatically, or we, we ought to, right? If our, our heart is right before the Lord, there's a sense in which we're going to automatically come together. We're going to stand together. We're going to stand fast in the Lord together. We're going to be of the same mind in the Lord. Uh, this unity <laughs> is not necessarily uniformity. In fact, it is not uniformity. In fact, I think one of the wonderful things about unity is that we can have different ideas and think differently, maybe even disagree with each other. I'm not talking about major doctrinal issues or things like that, but there can be disagreements and, and preferences and, and different things, and yet we can still stand in unity in the Lord. 
Um, unity does not mean we agree on every single thing or see everything the same way. And so, so the unity, the focus of our unity is the Lord. Notice it is in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. This is the second time that phrase in the Lord has come up. We found it in verse one, stand fast in the Lord. Here he says, be of the same mind in the Lord. Clearly the, the implication is Paul saying, get your mind and your heart on the Lord. Get your eyes on him. Make sure he is the focus. And if he is the focus, we stand solidly in him together. And we seek to be of the same mind in the Lord. He is the focus. Whatever the little disagreements that we have with each other and we think a little bit differently or whatever, that is not the focus. The focus is Christ. The enemy wants to divide us. It's like he's saying the enemy wants to divide you. You need to stand against that and you need to stand together with one mind focused on Christ. Stand in unity. First exhortation. Second exhortation, verse four. Be joyful. Be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The word rejoice there means to be filled with joy, delight, to be calmly happy. It was a common greeting in that day as people met each other, a way of greeting each other. We say hello or good day or whatever it is that we say to each other. These people often when they met each other would say rejoice. It, it, was, it was a way of saying be well or be glad or Godspeed or something like that. It was, a, it was a positive way of greeting one another. When we think about joy and, and the joy of the Lord uh, here and, and really the meaning of, of joy, I think biblically, is the inner joy that we have. It is, it is a joy of the heart that is within that is then reflected externally out of our life. So that the idea of rejoicing is that there's an inner joy within me that, that is then evident in my life and in the way that I live through my attitudes and through the reactions that I have to people and in different circumstances. Happiness, of course, depends on the happenings, right? If things are positive and great and, and everything's coming up roses, so to speak, then we feel happy. If the circumstances are not good or it's negative or it's difficult, then we maybe don't feel happy and we are up and down in our moods and our emotions. And we all go through that. We all feel that. Some of, it, some of us feel it more intensely and the mood swings are stronger than they are with others, but we all experience that sense of happiness. Joy is something, of course, obviously deeper and stronger than just happiness. We can have joy in spite of the happenings of our lives and the circumstances of our lives. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If we went to Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, and it, the first one is love, the second one is joy. It's, I don't know that the, the, the order means that one is more important than the other. I think it is interesting that love is the first one, and then joy is the second one. I want you to notice, again, the phrase, in the Lord. We found it uh, back uh, earlier, right, in, in, in verse 1. We found it in verse 2, thinking about unity. Here we find it in verse 3. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. What does that say? Again, get your eyes on the Lord. Get your mind on him. Get your thoughts on him. Get your focus on him. And, and so clearly here the direction is to the Lord. Three times, as I said, we've got that. Who he is, who the Lord is. What he has done for us. What he will do for us. 
Think about what we read at the end of chapter 3, what Paul is referring to there, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the Savior. He's going to transform our body. Our citizenship is in heaven. That is our destiny. That is where we are going. If our, mo our focus is on the Lord, who he is, what he has done, what he's going to do, even in the worst of circumstances, it is possible then to have joy. I'm convinced that this is how followers of Christ who go through great trials. Some of you that are listening to this message tonight have walked through severe trials in your life, and that has not been easy, and it doesn't mean you have been happy in everything that you have gone through, but many of you could testify to the fact that even in going through that trial, even though it wasn't, wasn't something I wanted or wasn't excited about it, God gave me peace and God gave me joy in that. And I'm convinced that those who go through that and maintain that joy going through great trials, it's because the focus is on Christ. It is on him. I'm looking to him and holding to him and to his promise and to his truth. It is an error, I believe, to teach that, and there are uh, places where this is taught, churches where this is taught, that if you follow Jesus Christ faithfully, you won't have any problems and you won't suffer, and you won't have any difficulties. I don't think that's true. I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible where it says, if I follow Jesus faithfully, nothing will ever go wrong in my life, and I will be rich, and I'll be healthy all the time, and I will have everything. I don't believe that lines up with what I see in the Scripture. I see faithful servants of Jesus Christ in the Word of God who suffered incredibly, like Paul, who's writing this letter like the other apostles who every one of them, except for John who lived to an old age, but faced adversity as well, but the rest of them died a martyr's death. Was that because they were unfaithful to Christ? No, they were absolutely faithful. So it is an error to teach that if I do everything right, I'm not gonna have any problems. We can have joy, we can rejoice without avoiding sorrow in life or pain. Joy is not about avoiding pain or difficulty. Joy is also not about denying it. It's not about just put on, putting on a smile and saying everything's fine and everything's great. It's not about that. It is about recognizing that this is difficult and I am going through a hard time and it does hurt and it is painful, but in spite of that, God has given me joy. There is a joy inside to face the trial, to face the suffering and the sorrow that is real. That is a joy in the Lord through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not remove the pain and Christ does not remove the pain, but it enables us this joy through the Holy Spirit enables us to rise above it. It carries us through it. It strengthens us to face it. Notice the, the, the condition or the circumstance the circumstance, pardon me, in which we are supposed to rejoice in the Lord. It's one word, always. He says always. Now, I'm going to be very vulnerable to you all tonight, and I'm going to say there's sometimes I'm not doing that. So, so I don't want to come up here tonight and pretend that I always have this right, and I always nail this, and I always get it right because my wife is here, and she will call me on that if I say that later on. So there are times that I am not living in the joy of the Lord the way that I ought to. Maybe some of you can relate with that. So the exhortation to me and to you is to say, look, all the time, in every circumstance, you need to rejoice in the Lord. And if my eye is on Christ and my heart is on Christ and my mind is there and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking about all that I have in Jesus Christ, I can rejoice in him 
in any circumstance. When I get my eyes off of him, I get my eyes on myself, which I often do. I can lose sight of that. And then the focus becomes on me. So again, in the Lord rejoice, he says, rejoice in the Lord always, all the time. I want to call that word always, and there's several of these words that come up in this passage as we go through it. I'll draw attention to them. Maybe some of you have marked these verses, or pardon me, mark these words in your Bible. These are the words that you go, oh, I just wish I could take that one out, you know? Like rejoice in the Lord when everything is going great, and when it's going bad, don't rejoice in the Lord. No, he says rejoice in the Lord always. These are what I would call superlatives. They are superlative words. Here, here it is a, an adverb of frequency. It is, it is an all-encompassing word that basically is saying in every circumstance, whether it is positive or whether it is negative, whether it is easy in the moment to do that or whether it is incredibly, incredibly difficult in the moment to do that, in every circumstance rejoice in the Lord. Even if the worst is to happen to you, you were to lose everything and maybe even lose your life if you were to lose all of that you still have christ you still have heaven you still have forever you still have your citizenship with him in heaven you're going to be with him ultimately in the end how do we do that practically how do we actually live this out in our life I'm convinced that the only way we can do this is, is by surrendering. We, we're either going to surrender to the circumstance that is, that is tearing at us or overwhelming us or surrender to the Holy Spirit. And surrender that circumstance, whatever it is, to the Holy Spirit and to Christ and to God and to live surrendered to him as we walk through that difficulty, whatever it is. And Paul comes to the end of the verse and he says, in case you didn't hear me the first time, again, I will say rejoice. It's an amazing little verse, isn't it? And so we've got two exhortations so far. Number one, stand in unity. Number two, be joyful. And here's the third one and the last one. It's in verse five, or the last one for tonight anyway. I'm going to end here. Let your gentleness, it is this, show gentleness. Show gentleness. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand gentleness means i think we all if i were to say to you think of think of someone that is gentle someone that characterizes gentleness you probably will know someone that go oh that person they're so gentle in their spirit so you have a pretty good idea of what it means right i think we get this but but the literal meaning of it is mildness uh it's the idea of a spirit of moderation a calmness meekness humility it's kind of a word that speaks for itself right Interesting, too, that this is also a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is number eight if you go through that list of the fruits of the Spirit, but it's still there in the, in the list. And so what that tells us is that it is possible to, when we are yielded to the Holy Spirit, to have a gentleness about our character. Some of you are very gentle uh, in your temperament. And uh, I don't know that you would, it, it maybe in a sense, it's almost natural for you to be a gentle person. It's just in your temperament to be like that. Some of us are not like that. Some of us, it is counter to our temperament to be gentle. Um, and and uh, again, because my wife is here, I have to confess that there are times it's getting better. Thank God I'm growing and maturing and it's taken 60 years, but eventually I'm getting there that I'm not, you know, as at times not gentle in the way I've handled situations or people or the way I've spoken into things. Sometimes I'm not very gentle. Uh, just this past summer driving on uh, 
uh, Highway 17, 417, heading to camp one day. <laughs> Some guy cut me off on the highway, and my response was not so gentle. And I didn't do anything terrible or erratic or anything, but what I said and the way I reacted and laying on the horn. And as soon as I did that, my wife said to me, let your gentleness be known to all men. She said, the Lord is at hand immediately. And it was just like, boom, there it is. Something that I have tried to do. And in the moment, so, so, so some of you can relate with that, right? You just are not naturally a gentle person and you struggle with this and it's a difficulty. But it is possible through the Holy Spirit. And again, as we yield ourselves and present ourselves to God in the Holy Spirit, and as we present those circumstances, it's difficult sometimes because it happens so quickly but if we can walk in that surrendered spirit, we can be gentle in the moment that that thing happens. Notice the direction of our gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to all men or all people. It doesn't mean just men. Of course, it means men and women. It's all people. And again, you have a word here that is a superlative. You have the word all. It means everyone. It's like, wait a minute, God. You want me to be like gentle to every person? Yeah. And the guy that cuts me off on the highway? Yeah. And the guy that is abusive to me in the way they speak to me, yes. And the enemy and the person that wants to get me, yes. It is all people, not, not just people that, 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 you know, maybe are in authority, or, you know, who, who have some power over us, who have influence, or people that we like that we're going to be gentle to, but everyone. And, and of course, it begs the question and the challenge practically in here is how do we treat others? How do we, as, as followers of Christ, I think we know how we ought to treat them with gentleness, but how do we treat people, for example, that do menial jobs for us? How do we treat people who are anonymous that we think, well, I'm never going to see this person again and, and whatever, and we know how that can play out sometimes, right, in our mind and the way we justify things. How do, how do we pe treat people that are different from us, different race, different religion, different culture, different, even dare I say it, sexual orientation, whatever it might be. How, how would the Lord Jesus treat the other, someone that is different from us? How should we treat them? How would we treat people even that don't like us or enemy? Again, this is not easy, especially when we're dealing with people that are opposed to us or are against us, what we would think of as our enemies. But what it doesn't say here, treat the people gently that you like. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. Why does it say that? I think there are one of two possible meanings for that phrase, the Lord is at hand. It literally means the Lord is near. One could be this, that Jesus is with us, near us, everywhere we go, right? We can't go anywhere that the Lord isn't near us. And so, and so maybe it's that. Maybe, maybe Paul's saying, wherever you go, Jesus is right there with you. And so it's like the WWJD, what would Jesus do thing, everywhere I go because he's right there with me. How would I treat that person if I was conscious of the fact that the Lord Jesus is standing right there with me? And of course, the implication is, well, he is standing there with you. So how are you treating them? Are you treating them with gentleness? That's one possible interpretation. The second is that he's referring to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming. He's coming again. So, so that we need to live with this sense of an expectation that he could appear at any moment, right? Now, now I think either of those is good. In fact, maybe both of them are implied in that statement, the Lord is at hand. Either way, the practical application is this, that we would live in a way that we understand we're accountable to the Lord for how we treat others in our life. Of course, that, that comes right down to our homes, 
our marriages, our children. It touches our extended family. It goes into our church life and how we treat one another in the body of Christ. It touches our community and our friend circle, our work circle. It just keeps going because that word all implies clearly and obviously every person that we come in contact with, whoever, wherever, that the testimony of Christ that we would show would be one of gentleness, of mildness, of humility, of kindness to people that we interact with. Stand in unity, be joyful, show gentleness. And I'll stop with that this evening and we'll continue next week in this chapter.